Welcome to Season 2 of The Plants We Eat, a podcast from the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens that investigates the fascinating history, biology, and culture behind the plants we use for food. This is Jeff Gilman and Cindy Proctor. Together we have over 50 years of research, teaching, and hands-in-the-dirt experience with growing plants, and over 100 years of experience eating them. <laughs> so, so yeah, let, me, let, me, let me start by saying uh, thank you very much to uh, Kristen Bushy for the topic of today's discussion, which is cattails. We're going to get to cattails in just a minute, but before we do, I had, a, had an interesting comment this week from uh, Matt Rowney, Matthew Rowney, who's actually an instructor in the Department of English here. I actually was uh, lecturing in a class of his, and I talked about mad honey. Now, some of you may remember mad honey from one of our earlier episodes. It's that honey which is made from rhododendrons, making it <laughs> actually either toxic or hallucinogenic or, uh, well, it, it can have different effects on the human mind. Uh, he found some interesting data that, uh, that I've got to share with you. So I'm going to, this is quoting Matt. I recently was doing a little snooping around and found out that mad honey was a major Black Sea export in the 18th century. 25 tons of toxic honey known to Westerners as mild fowl, crazy honey, were shipped each year to Europe to be added to drinks sold in taverns. This is from an article on Mad Honey by Adrian Mayer in a journal called Archaeology. If this is true, that's quite a popular drink. I'm going to see what else I can find out. Well, hey, Matt, I really want to find out what, <laughs> what more you, what, wow. what you find out, too. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, 25 that is... tons of that stuff. Wow, that's which, a black market, uh, uh, black market honey right there. Yes, <laughs> black market honey. <laughs> Could go so many I'm glad directions. we amuse ourselves. <laughs> I am, too. I don't know if we amuse anybody else. I know, but... But we sure do amuse <laughs> <That's right>. ourselves. <laughs> All right, so back to, back to Kristen. Until she had mentioned this, I, I have to be honest. I, I never really even thought of cattails as being I would have never edible. myself. So I want to thank you, Kristen, for such a fun topic. For And I think you and I would both agree that we enjoyed this immensely. And when you say cattails, I have very fond memories as a child seeing them in the Midwest everywhere because they're very invasive. Yes. But, you know, the whole world could survive <laughs> on cattails. I, I, I know. After reading, after reading all this, I, <laughs> I was thinking, if there's one plant in this whole world that I felt that I needed to survive and I could only have this one plant, what plant would that be? Cattails. And you don't have to forage too much <laughs> for for each edible part. And it's not only edible, but they're medicinal. They're, there's one website that I found that he is in love, and it's called the Backwoods Home Garden. It's a self-survival website, and that's where I used a lot of my, uh, got my research from, you know, for, for our topic here. Because he had a lot, he loves cattails because of all of its uses. So I can't wait to talk about that in just yeah, the next yeah. few minutes. Me either, but we do want to get into cattails, but we've also got so many interesting things about our research to find. So anyway, like you, I found a number of forage sites, some of which were good, some which weren't, some of which I would use information from, some right. I wouldn't. But then I found uh, this one fascinating paper. And let me tell it to you, because if you're really interested in cattails, this is the first place you should go, not the last place like I went. So the title of the paper is Cattails, Weed Problem or Potential Crop. This came out in Economic Botany, Volume 29, Number 1, came out in 1975. The author was Julia F. Morton. Why am I being so exact with my reference? Because I read a lot of reviews. I read a lot of scientific papers. Very few just hit me so hard that I've got to look up the author. 
say, man, this is an incredible review. I can't believe this. I've, I've got to find out who this person who wrote this article is. Well, the person who wrote this article, her name is Julia Morton. She passed away, unfortunately, in 1996. She was born in 1912. She was elected as a fellow of the Linnaean Society of London in 1974. She is an incredible writer, and if you're interested in cattails, you have to read that article. That should be the first place that you go. I had put together a whole lot of really interesting things that I'm going to talk about, and I am going to talk about those today. I put down very little, a few things, but very little, which she didn't already have in this just incredible article. And you let it was well written too. And it, that always it was. Is, that's it, always fun. It yeah. was. I found it for a scientific article. I found it just completely readable. Okay, so good for a scientific article. You know. So anyway. And you've written a few of those. I, I've, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Anyway. But you know, so cattail is from the grass family, which shouldn't Absolutely. surprise you if you're familiar with how it looks. And mm-hmm. so the cattail not only is from the grass family, but so is rice, wheat, oats, barley, mm-hmm. and rye, excuse me. And it it is invasive, but it can be contained. It's it's pretty rhizomatous in how it grows. But Rhizomatous meaning you've got these underground stems. Right. In other words, if you've got one cattail growing some Somewhere. It's not going to stay one cattail for long, and that's not because of seeds. That's because underground stems are going to spread that plant. And I'd like to share with you some of the things that I found on how you can eat it, but uh, I can tell you have something to <laughs> say otherwise that you're dying to. No, no, so. no. Actually, I do want to start with eating it. Okay. I found I found a billion and a half ways to eat this plant. And the funny thing is, so often with a forage crop, you see it referred to as a survival food. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can eat it, but you'd rather have something else first. Well, based on many of the, and this is more of the survival guides that I was reading, a lot of people really prefer this crop when it's done properly. This crop has been eaten for around 30,000 years. There's actually evidence of, uh, in fact, I'll tell you the paper for that one, 30,000-year-old evidence of plant food processing by Anna Revedin. Basically, they found uh, cattail rhizomes ground in Italy. They found these underground stems actually ground up in Italy. Was it for flour? Um, yeah, so that, okay. would be, that would be to make flour. Okay. And this appears to be, again, one of its first uses to make a flour out of that underground rhizome, that underground storage organ that it uses to spread. This has a lot of starches in it, and you grind that up and you bake it into a flour. So that apparently, from what we can see, that's the first way that it was really used. But there were a lot of other uses. What, what were the ones that were your favorites? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that it is a great filter in, yes. in uh, bodies of water from toxins that run off the road. And so we, when you are looking for that cattail to eat and to try out, be careful where you're getting it from because it is a sink for a, lo- a, for a lot of chemicals considered- and toxins. The term is a heavy metal accumulator. Now, having said it's a heavy metal accumulator, I went through a number of research articles, and because it's such a strong grower, it's considered a pretty good heavy metal accumulator, but it's actually far from the best. There are a number of other plants and wetlands that do a better job. Nonetheless, if you know that your water source is contaminated with heavy metals, it's something that I would stay away from. Or from getting off the side of the road. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of limits it as, I guess, a survival plant. But nonetheless, I just wanted to make sure. It's worth worth pointing out. But um, you asked my favorite. I am very interested in eating it like uh, someone described as corn on the cob. 
Did you hear that description? <laughs> I, I did. Okay. And it sounded good. It sounds like they took the immature flowers as they were maturing and they would actually grill it. Now, we should explain some of the biology of cattails yes. here. What's really neat about cattail is when we say it's flowering, it's not your typical flower, but it's the spike of like a scrub brush, you know, if you will, and it in, in of the female part. And then the right. male part has more of that dandelion, you know, very that part, hairy part. Right. That part that you're looking at at the top, that kind of swollen area that looks a little bit like a hot dog on a stick. Uh, there you go. That's better. That's the hot, better. The hot dog on the stick is actually <laughs> the a bunch of female flowers. Flowers. Okay. In fact, that's about 200,000 female All right. flowers. All right, you saved me from that one. Okay, no, that's now, good. Now, above the hot dog, there's actually a second smaller hot dog, and that is the male part. Exactly. Yes, that's the male part. Well, that is the ornamental part of it, if you right. will. That is more obvious in late fall or around late summer. Right. You know, so when you want to acquire that flower part and eat it as a corn on the cob, if you will, you're going to have to forage for it, and I mean dig through a little of the stems close to the water area that it's emerging from in late uh, spring to early summer. Mm -hmm. And you're literally going to—it won't be visible, so again, you'll have to forage it, and you'll have to get them from the center of the plant. And you may have to peel back the foliage away from that like you're mm -hmm. shucking corn. And how you would eat that is you could boil it, mm -hmm. and um, and you're going to peel it away and typically just eat it. And and, and that's very grilled. interesting to me. And I have seen it grilled, and I saw it breaded. You saw it breaded? Yes, Not I saw it breaded. breaded. Yes. So, you know, I don't know if, <laughs> if we're getting away from what uh, it tastes like when we start doing all that. But, uh, yes, the, it, I have seen it breaded. Now, did you see, using the pollen of the plant specifically for pancakes, although I also saw it used as a beer batter. That's funny you said that. So yes, you can use the flour and because it's so floriferous, if if you will, yeah. it, you can collect, it said, several pounds in less than an hour. That doesn't seem possible I to me. I believe that in a really, it, I mean, have you ever seen like a really massive? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So at the right time of year. Pounds though. Right. You know, <laughs> we didn't mention there are about 30 different types of cats. Tails. There is. And, there is. And some are going to produce more pollen than others. That's a good point. And, and so I've seen certain heavily uh, pollinating cattails, right? I think you could uh, collect that much. And, and there are people in some of these recipes are talking about 50% pollen um, with 50% flour mixed together to make your pancakes. And I Hey, I would I I really want to try this now. And I also heard of using essentially the same mix to make a beer batter where they beer battered uh Actually, beer-battered fish. That makes sense to me because you can also make cornbread, mm -hmm. you know, from it. But I will say it contains gluten, so it's uh, not a gluten-free alternative. Okay. So it might be that is more of a survival thing where you don't have flour and mm. you're needing yeah. something to make pancakes and cornbread. I don't know. But inter interestingly enough. You can also eat the young leaves if uh -huh. you want to. And you can use these young leaves apparently in a salad and the older leaves can be used for weaving because yes. why not? Now. I thought the most interesting thing that you could use this as was as a cereal. Okay, now, a cereal? A cereal. So okay. here's here's the way you do it. Like I became, Special K cereal? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, I became fascinated with the fluff. I'll tell you why I became fascinated with okay. the fluff in just a minute. <laughs> the fluff. The fluff. So after the female flowers are fertilized, after the female flowers are fertilized, you have a seed developed, this tiny little seed. I mean, you have 200,000 of them on the cattail. So you have this tiny little seed and it has this tiny little long piece of fluff. Have you ever seen a cattail go to seed where it gets all super big and fluffy? Yes. And okay. Well, 
if you take that fluff with the seat attached and you put it onto the ground or onto a rock or whatever, and then you ignite it, the fluff will burn off and it will leave behind the seeds, which can then be eaten as a cereal. And it can be eaten, uh, you know, I, I, re- I saw it referred to uh, as being used by Native Americans. So I am really curious about what that would what that would taste like. You could now when I say a cereal, I say you could eat it as a cereal because the pieces are so small. But actually, I think the best way to do it would be to grind it and to use it as something else. I also read that the seeds were used for the Indians to feed the cattle. Yeah, I mean this is this plant has everything. Another thing that I uh, came across, and and it's because I love asparagus. Yes, and we should talk about that one day. Uh, we'll get to it. I'm okay, sure. sorry, but in late <laughs> summer, asparagus, <laughs> and you hate it. I don't care. No, <laughs> thanks. I'm, I'm kidding. But in late summer or early fall, you can collect the tender inner portions of the leaf stalk to kind of get a piece that appears to be celery-like. You have to be careful because it may start to toughen up mm-hmm. if you go back too far into the stalk and uh, close to the to the root. So you have to be kind of have to be selective and maybe trial and error. But I'm interested to see. But that's another food you can have later in the season, you know, because we've talked more about spring. Right. And um, so the medicinal uses. Did you uh, find a lot of things about that? Tell me what you found. Oh yeah, I did find medicinal uses. You know, with all these things, I, I, I'm getting I'm getting tired of hearing that plants are aphrodisiacs. If I hear one more plant is an aphrodisiac, well, I shouldn't Not say that. Not this one, is it? Yes, oh. yes. There was at least one reference to it being an aphrodisiac. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> it, it you gets, brought it up. Now it gets have... it gets silly. Okay. So I went through the research and I did find reasonably good evidence that it's actually a good topical treatment for wounds. That was the one that had any real the, scientific evidence. That's the one I found. Yeah, you know that you can uh, grind it up and make some kind of now, which paste. Which part? Which part were, were they, the uh, the roots? You know, you can get the roots and you can um, grind them up, like okay. to make up some kind of paste. The paper that I went through uh, was referring to the female flowers. Okay. Uh, as as having that medicinal use. Okay. Now beyond that, I had to go. You know, after our last episode and checking out the patents, I had to go to the patent till again. Oh, that was smart. And uh, I, I found a uh, Spanish patent for flour in the 1800s, and by flour I mean again the flour that you that you cook with. That was really all, but. But after doing some significant searching, I found this one. In 1943, I found a popular science article about the Burgess Battery Company. And the Burgess Battery Company, which was in Chicago, started using cattail fluff for life preservers in World War II. There were World War II sailors who were actually using cattail fluff as the way that they would be saved. And there's a patent on this? There was not a patent on this. So then I looked some more. Extensive tests, which were conducted, of course, by the U.S. Navy, demonstrated that a pound of milkweed could keep a 150-pound man floating for more than 40 hours. Okay, I I smell a show. Yeah. (laughs) Coming like a survival show. I think we've got to try this. I think we've got to get, um, you know. Is that our next adventure? I could drop a couple of pounds. Not to tell you exactly. I could drop a couple of pounds, and then I'll get a little over a, a pound of milkweed uh, floss, and I'll see if it can keep me afloat for that long. I'm there. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Cindy. (laughs) No. So this was because we weren't able to get most of the life preserver materials actually coming from Asia. And obviously with World War II going on, we couldn't get to Asia. So 
we had to come up with our own. And there were two things that were used. I shouldn't say two things. There are actually some synthetic things, but there are two natural things that were used for flotation. Obviously, the one was the cattail fluff. <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> and the and the other one was actually uh, milkweed fluff. Oh, which I, that I makes mean, sense. Yeah. For whatever reason, I can see milkweed fluff much more clearly in my head as being useful than the cattail fluff. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just because I actually grew up near a lot of milkweed, whereas I, uh, I certainly saw plenty of cattails, but they weren't right beside my house. Whereas I could go out my back porch. And... Well, you're right. That's why it was. That's why yeah. you, you think that way. Yep. So that, that was, of course, <laughs> a... I just love this. I, I was reading one paper and they referred to it as a war effort resource. I'm thinking cattails, war effort resource. And that was one of the first papers I read and that just struck me as really funny. And then after I'm done reading all this stuff, I'm like, cattails? If I was in a war, I would want lots of cattails. <laughs> well, I am so grateful, Kristen, that you helped us. We would have never, I don't think, led to this direction at all if it wasn't for her suggestion, for her input. No, uh, Kristen, this was this was this was so much fun. You know, every every week we get something new, and uh, and uh, new and better. Now, one thing before we leave: sometimes cattails can grow amongst other plants and mm -hmm. can be confused. One can be confused for the other, and that happens all the time, of course. Yes. But in this case. I want to mention that there is an iris called yellow flag that I think is it should be noted. Roughly similar, yes. Yes, because it, it's poisonous and it grows amongst cattails. So if you're foraging for cattails, you're going to most likely come across this iris. And the way to tell them apart is the stem of a cattail is round and irises stems are always flat like a fan. So just be careful when you're... Uh, In fact, I'm going to go a step further be with an expert, the, at least okay. the first time that okay. you go. I, That's a good I don't, point. I don't like to mess around with this stuff. I did look up the toxicity of cattail. And although when you look through the literature, you can find a few papers that say that cattails may have had something to do with the poisoning. There's very little real hard evidence that, ha that cattails had anything to do with poisoning. I'm sure that at some stage of its life somewhere, there are some cattails that are toxic, but generally speaking, this has got to be one of the safest plants. This is the common cattail. Yeah. And it's the iris that grows in between yeah. it I would be concerned about. Be be careful when you forage. Foraging is great, but you need to do it at least the first few times with somebody who really knows what they're doing. And there's so much information out there in the technological age that we're in, so it's it wouldn't be hard to... No, but I, I really believe you should go out there. Okay. Somebody who really knows what they're doing. So many botanical terms can be screwed up by somebody who doesn't who doesn't know what they're doing. So so anyway, be careful out there. Yeah. Now we've had another suggestion, and once again, please send us suggestions. Uh, I'll give you my email address again. It's J Gilman. That's J G I L L M A N at U N C C dot E D U. Drop me an email. We really want to hear from you. Want to hear all your ideas for different podcasts. We've had some uh, some unique ones recently, which hopefully we'll be getting to in future shows. Might even do a special episode, which kind of goes off the um, what I'll call foods and onto just some some interesting topics. We're excited to try some that are, interesting topics that, that are still worth talking about. That are still worth talking mm -hmm. about, and still have to do certainly with the plants we eat, just not on a particular one. Now, for next week, Shauna Clark wrote us a very nice email and gave us a list of plants to choose from, and the one that struck me most was dates. So, how about dates? I'm in. We're going to do dates next week. Well, I'm looking forward to on it. On our date. There we go. This has been The Plants We Eat, a production of the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens with the uh, College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at UNC Charlotte. 
with collaboration from the Isle Group. Thank you all so much for listening, and we look forward to talking with you next week.